a new episode of Wizards After Dark, talking all things wizards. I'm Fred Katz. I'm the host of Wizards After Dark. And uh, amazingly, we're still talking about basketball. Basketball is still happening. And I am here to talk about basketball with you. And on the Skype line is somebody I wrote about 7,200 words about the Wizards with this week. Uh, knows as much about NBA prospects as anybody that you are going to hear talk about NBA prospects, Sam Vecini. Friend, how you doing, man? You know, I'm like as fine as anyone's going to be these days. Everyone's healthy. Everyone's good. Like I feel like these days, if you have your B minus day, you're in great shape. And I'm just I'm filled with <laughs> filled with B minus days. Like I'm 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 back in high school. Just tons of B minuses. So the reason I wanted to have you on today is because the thing that I've, I like to do in general, and I've especially been doing it lately because it's just kind of a good way to match things up, is I've been doing kind of companion podcasts to pieces that I've written with other people. So I did a two-part series a couple of weeks ago with John Hollinger, uh, breaking down the Wizards Young Guys and their futures, and you can check that out over at The Athletic if you want to sign up for The Athletic. A 40% discount, by the way. You can do that at theathletic.com slash wizardsafterdark, and you can get a full subscription to an annual podcast, or an annual subscription, I mean. Uh, it comes out to about $36 for the entire year. You can get everything right there, and you get the full full access to the site, not just my wizard stuff, but everything, all NBA, all MLB, everything else. And you can sign up for that, um, and you'll be able to see the piece with Hollinger from a couple weeks ago. I did a companion podcast where, you know, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know I had John on a couple weeks ago to talk about the young guys. I did a podcast with Steve Buckhans and Phil Chenier last week, and I ended up writing up a couple of the stories that they told on there for the website. And this week, you and I did a thing. It's a series that you're doing with a few, you've done with a few other beat writers, and we did it together, and we went very in depth. We went on tankathon.com, which is really an addictive site to scroll through, and we simmed out six different lottery scenarios. And made up six fake scenarios, kind of mock drafts. You went through and made up six mock drafts for the Wizards. Uh, and we saw where, who the Wizards would pick in those mock scenarios and kind of broke it down. And it's two parts. It ran Monday and Tuesday. You can check that out over at The Athletic DC. And I kind of wanted to talk about that and talk about some other things. I, I, I think the first, before we, before we start up, I just want to get a general idea because we didn't really cover it to this degree in our chat what do you think of where the wizards are at right now because they're very much in an even though they were 24 and 40 this year they're very much in an in-between spot with john wall coming back and the contracts they have in their books and them wanting to hold on to bradley beal so where do you think the wizards could be at next year and where would you want them to be at if you were running them yeah those are two dramatically different questions unfortunately uh I thought the Wizards uh, this year were at least entertaining. They put a fun product on the court, which is uh, something that I did not anticipate them doing. Uh, I think for next year, a big question is simply at what level does John Wall return? I think that, you know, we all know that John's preparation in terms of what he does off the court and, and you know, his basketball IQ is just absolutely exceptional. So, he is someone that I can see making a case for aging well, despite the fact that he could lose some of that electric athleticism that uh, 
embodied so much of the early part of his career. But again, like his game was very based on being quicker than everyone else on the court. And that changed a little bit at DH, but uh, how much is his game diminished if there is an athletic uh, decrease in his quickness? Uh, I think that that is a big question, and I think it's really hard. But, you know, at the end of the day, look, this is a team with uh, Bradley Beal that uh, has essentially two years left on his deal after his extension and has John Wall uh, locked up long-term. I understand at least seeing where it goes next year. But, I mean, if someone bowled me over for an offer to Bradley Beal this summer, I would be significantly considering that, if only because uh, Brad is at the peak of his value right now with two years left on that deal and because there isn't exactly a ton of optionality this year in free agency from a star perspective. You can really make the case that the Wizards could control the marketplace a bit in a similar way to the Pelicans last year with Anthony Davis. Uh, Brad is obviously not as good as Anthony Davis, but they can control the marketplace in a very similar manner uh, to which they could extract an exceeding amount of value from Bradley Beal this summer. So that's the road I'd be looking down, uh, certainly. But, yeah, I don't think they will, and I think that this is going to be a team that tries to make playoffs next year with John Wall and Bradley Beal and trying to re-sign Davis Burp or Davis Bertans and, uh, you know, hoping that they get improvement from Troy Brown and Rui Achimura. So, so one thing that I think they will do, and Tommy Shepard told me this in a chat that I had with him, what, it must have been six weeks ago now, uh, but Tommy Shepard did tell me that chances are they're going best player available in the draft. They're not necessarily looking at need and all that kind of stuff, which means there is a plausible, you know, if we simulate out a million different universes, in some of those universes, they're drafting a point guard. And man, that would be fascinating. Like they have they have ninth lottery positioning right now. Let's just like assume, by the way, that the standings are frozen. That the season ends the season ends and this is where the wizards are at, because otherwise we you have to speak in too many hypotheticals. So let's just assume the Wizards have ninth the the ninth worst record, and we can talk about the millions of lottery scenarios that could potentially follow. They have a four and a half percent chance at the first pick. They have about a twenty percent chance at getting into the top four right now, which is possible. The one out of five times they're getting into the top four. So they could end up with a point guard. They can end up with a point guard high because they could end up with LaMelo Ball. They could end up with a point guard later because they could end up with Cole Anthony. They could end up with, uh, you know, Tyrese Halliburton. They could end up with Killian Hayes. Like, they could end up with guards. Even, like, Anthony Edwards is a guard. Like, he's not really a true three who you're going to put next to Beal and Wall. Like, there are things where you get positionally ambiguous. Like it's not always just you end up with James Wideman, it's Wiseman, you slot him in at center, and that's it. And I think one of the fascinating things is that there are a good amount of guards in the top projected top 10, top 12, top 14 of this draft. And if the Wizards end up with one of those guys, the reaction will be, oh my goodness, do they believe in John Wall? Do they, if John Wall comes back and actually is good, then what's the future of Cole Anthony or Tyrese Halliburton? Uh, you know, especially a guy like Anthony. Anthony is not a huge point guard. Like, it's not like Halliburton where he's like a 6'5 guard. He's not a huge point guard. So 
there are all these questions that will come if they end up taking a guard. And I've, I have no problem, by the way, with taking the best player available. When you're 24 and 40 and you are last in the league in defensive efficiency and with the way that the, the, the NBA is nowadays, with the style that it's played with nowadays and how you want playmakers on the floor and you can kind of fit you know, you don't have a center who's good enough to block you from drafting a center. And with you just want wings and you want ball handlers, you want guards, you want creators, you want shooters, you want all these things. You can't have too many wings. You can't have too many of, you know, any of those perimeter positions. That's what you want to load up on. And the Wizards are missing on those. So go get the best player available. But if you end up with a guard there, I'm like, I am so curious. And I don't know the answer to these questions, by the way, because it depends on the person. It depends on the scenario. It depends on how John Wall looks like when he comes back. If John Wall looks diminished or if John Wall looks great, that's a completely different way that whoever they draft is going to be used, right? So I'm just so curious about how that will play out if they do end up with one of those guards. Yeah, I would strongly agree with you that they should take the best player available. I'm not someone that... uh, you know, we'll always feel that way. I think that uh, schematic fit, developmental fit, roster fit, a lot of these factors play a role in the development of players. And I think that the Wizards, however, are in a very uncertain place in regard to their roster. Like, we don't know what John Wall is going to look like. We don't know if Bradley Beal is going to be there uh, after the next 18 months. We don't know uh, if Dottis Burton is going to be there. Uh, we don't know if Rui Achimura and Troy Brown are merely rotation players or if they are essential difference makers as starters, right, uh, on good teams. So given those factors, I think that the Wizards, and given the fact that, look, like I think Scott Brooks actually did a pretty good job this year, but I, I also don't know that I can sit here and tell you that he's 100% going to be the coach and like, 24 months, right? So given all of those factors, I think that it's too difficult to project out what the best schematic fit, what the best developmental fit is for the Wizards, and thus they should just be taking uh, the best player available. And, uh, you know, if that's a point guard, it'll obviously stir up some shit across the Washington sporting media landscape. But I think that uh, you just have to take who the best guy is and you see where it all plays out. The guy that you feel the most confident can be a genuine difference maker for your organization. So let's say, let's say I'm, I'm going to make up a hypothetical. Lamelo's obviously in a different class from these guys. And I know you wrote in the piece that, he's really your favorite guy because you believe that his jump shot is is going to come around. He was 38 from the field, by the way, and 25 from three in Australia this past year. But let's say, let's say LaMelo's off the board. Let's say no matter where the Wizards pick, let's say Halliburton's still around. Anthony is still around. Um, Vassal is still around. And Hayes is still around. Who... And, and let's say the Wizards want to take a guard. It's just for the sake of the hypothetical. Who's the guy you're taking out of those? For the Wizards specifically. Oh, man, that's tough. Um, I would probably take Killian Hayes. I don't think his upside is enormous. Um, you know, I, I've heard 
of some folks putting him at number one. And I can't wrap my head around why that would be the case. He's not a particularly explosive athlete. He's extremely left-hand dominant. Uh, and he shot 28% from three over the course of the last three years. But with Hayes, what you are getting is a guy that is six foot five. He's really good defensively. He is uh, an incredibly intelligent playmaker and passer. Uh, he's a great live dribble ball handler and live dribble uh, passer, uh, creating plays for teammates. Uh, he has that cross-corner kick. He has great touch on lob passes. He's uh, kind of everything that I think you would want in a second side ball handler if you think the shot is going to come around a bit and some people do uh, he has consistently posted exceedingly high free throw percentages uh, some people really do believe in that being a uh, a way to project out shooting long term I think that some of the other uh, variables there for him are not as strong which is why I probably am slightly lower on him being a shooter than other people are but uh, just given his feel for the game, defensive acumen, and the passing ability, uh, I feel good about him being a very good NBA player. He's just probably not going to be some star quality player. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about Wiseman, too, because I think he's the most fascinating guy to me. Um, now, I probably should have said this at the start of the podcast. I'm not a prospect expert. Like, I sit around watching NBA throughout the entire year. I grew up a bigger college fan than I was NBA fan because I was a Clippers fan as a kid living in New York before the time of League Pass. So I was following stuff in the papers, and it's not like the Clippers were on national TV all too often. Like, I wasn't getting to see Quentin Ross defend on the perimeter as much as I would have loved to. And so I just wasn't getting to watch a ton of that and I was a huge Syracuse basketball fan growing up and so I was you know I was in New York so obviously I was a huge Syracuse fan and I watched a ton of Big East basketball and I just became a much bigger college fan growing up than I was NBA fan I was a bigger college fan NBA than NBA fan really until college and it kind of started to to flip a little bit then but I just don't it's just hard to follow it when you feel like you have to f keep up with the NBA as much I don't know how you do it the way that you do it but with a Wiseman the thing that I think is really interesting is there's the cliche conversation of do you want to take a center in this age and our big men is available and there's no um, middle class of big men, right? Like you don't see big men really getting the mid-level exception or getting 12 million a year now. Like Thomas Bryant is a pretty rare example of that, right? It's really a lot of guys who are, we can get them for cheap or we can get them for the max because they're Carl Anthony Towns and that's kind of it. And that's why like Dwayne Dedman gets that three year, $40 million deal last summer. And everyone's like, what in the world is Sacramento doing giving Dwayne Dedman three years, 40 million. The beauty of Dwayne Dedman is you don't have to pay him three years, 40 million. And if he wants three years, 40 million, you can move on to another Dwayne Dedman because there are so many centers out there. And that's kind of how you can control the center market these days. Wiseman, Opinions on him aside, just the type of player that he is, and you kind of brought this up to a degree in the piece that we wrote, each year we kind of see a little bit more of a progression towards the game going from being a stretched game to progressing even more into a playmaking game, right? So like 10 years ago, 
we talked about stretch fours, like they were a big thing. And we still use that terminology, stretch four. But now it's not even really just stretch fours. Now we got playmaking fours, right? Like the vast, a large, large, large number of fours, of power forwards are playmakers now. Now we have stretch fives and playmaking fours. It used to be playmaking ones, twos, and threes, stretch fours, and inside fives. We're going to get to a point. I don't know if it's going to be in two years or in four years or in seven years, but I am certain it will be over the length of if James Weinman has a normal, normal length career for someone who goes as a top three or four or five pick. 10 years, 12 years. At some point in that length, we're going to have a ton of playmaking fives. We've already got some of them, and we're going to have even more. And if James Wiseman isn't a playmaking five, if he's just a stretch five, a rim protector, a rim runner, that's really more of like a, a 2014 or 2015 big. And right now, that's kind of okay. But is it something that you want to take super high when a 2015 big in 2025 could feel as ancient as a 2009 big or 2005 big feels now with the way that the game is progressing. And so to me, the conversation about Wiseman is not even really about Wiseman. It's about projecting what the league is going to look like in five years. And that just leads to so many other conversations and more existential conversations about the way that basketball is developing and the way the NBA is developing, assuming we're playing basketball in five years, by the way, assuming the NBA starts by then. But that just leads to so many more conversations about the way the game and the way the pro game is developing. And I, I don't, I just find him two, two incredibly intelligent and well-educated people can have completely differing opinions on him because of that. And I just think the whole conversation around that is fascinating. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that James Wiseman has become the cipher for uh, the way that you think the game is going and the way that you think uh, the center position valuation is growing. Now, for me, ultimately the problem is that I agree with the general idea that the center position is becoming devalued. And I am not uh, told that James Wiseman is going to be anything more than like a Miles Turner level center where, look, like Miles Turner was awesome last year. He finished top five in defensive player of the year. And he was uh, a guy that can knock down threes uh, at a relatively consistent basis. And I think Wiseman's an even better rim runner than what Miles Turner is because he's a better downhill athlete with uh, better length, better height, and just a much wider catch rate. Miles Turner also yeah. hates to roll. Like, Miles Turner will pop to mid-range. He just doesn't like rolling. Like, there's also a willingness to roll. Like, where's Wiseman in the willingness to roll? Yeah, no, I, I think he definitely likes to roll more than he wants to pop sometimes. Uh, his bigger issue is not that he likes to roll. His bigger issue is, or doesn't like to roll. His bigger issue is that he likes to post sometimes and try to create like out of the mid post and take these goofy ass 14 foot floaters that are just terrible and not shots that any player in the NBA should take. Um, but I think that you can coach that out of him. He's a really smart kid, really, really intelligent kid. Um, you know, very coachable kid as well. So I think that that's what's going to change in his game. And uh, at the end of the day, I get that we are going toward more of a more of a wanting center who can make decisions on the fly and make plays. Ultimately, I still think the center position 
and its value is going to be derived more on the defensive end. Uh, you know, we can talk about teams going small, but, you know, the, the teams that go small across the NBA still have just absolute stud defenders at five, such as Robert Covington or such as Draymond Green, right? So James Wiseman, to me, the fact that he can be an exceptional play finisher at the rim, he can be, in my opinion, one of the five best defenders at some point in the NBA, especially around the basket. And he's going to be able to stretch the floor as a trailer or as a pop weapon who gives you versatility in order to build rosters around. Because, like, for instance, I'm writing about the Hawks right now. And if I was the Hawks, I know that I just took Clint Capella in a trade for uh, that 16th overall pick. I would very much consider James Wiseman at, like, number four if they end up moving into the number four spot because I think that his archetype of player is very compatible with John Collins, and I think that the archetype of player that is compatible with John Collins is very difficult to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, guys that can stretch the rim, stretch the floor and be elite level defenders. It's basically like my, and this is like the sub elite level, right? Like Joel Embiid can shoot a little bit. Um, you know, there are guys out there, you know, Nikola Jokic can shoot a little bit, but he's not a great defender, obviously. But like, you know, guys that aren't necessarily elite level players, it's like Miles Turner. It's, um, you know, Jaron Jackson, I think is in this range, but there aren't many of them. Like, Christoph Porzingis is as valuable as he is in the league because he brings both of those things to the table. So I think that James Wiseman is going to be an exceptionally valuable center for where the NBA is going within its modern game because he isn't just – while he is just a play finisher and not someone that I think is going to be a creator, he is someone that's going to make roster building actually a bit easier if he hits because he brings such a versatile skill set on both ends uh, of the floor to the table. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And and you're right. The center position is still primarily going to be a defensive position, whether that's imp- positive or negative impact. Like, a, a center is going to have the most impact on your defense in, in the right or the wrong direction. And I think Wizards fans have seen that, where like Thomas Bryant has really struggled defensively. Mo Wagner struggles defensively. Neither of them is because of effort, by the way. They both play super hard. They play really hard. Wagner throws his body into everything. Like that that dude, if you see if you see his chest, it's insane. He has like scrapes and bruises and scars, and it's wild. It's like the the fighter pilots are coming that are near you are coming for him. Like it's it's crazy, because uh, he just throws his body at everything, but he doesn't have the feet or the vertical or the length to make an impact around the rim. So he tries to take charges and be crafty, but then he ends up fouling way too much and just not there defensively. And Thomas Bryan is his reads aren't there defensively. His helps not there defensively. His pick and roll defense, his signal calling. He should be a better uh, rim protector than he is because he's got a 7'6 wingspan and a high standing reach, but it's just not there. Lower body strength isn't isn't there. And, and, you know, Wizards fans have seen what a defense can look like when you have a center who struggles as much as he does, and, and the opposite can, can be said for the same. 
I mean, Wiseman's super long. And how do you see him defending away from the ring? Like, is that is he going to be able to do that well? I know he projects as potentially like a, a major, major rim protector. But but what about um, on moments where he's either defending pick and roll or having to switch out in the perimeter or those sorts of things? Yeah, look, I think that he's definitely a drop coverage big man. Uh, that's fine. Like most teams, most good defenses, I would say, across the NBA now has gone to more of a drop coverage look now. Um, but I think that that's more the system you're going to want to build around him. And I legit think he's good enough defensively to where you do want to build a defense around him or will be good enough in the future. Um, he's not going to get, like, destroyed if he ends up on an island. Like, he's not, like, hyper slow or anything. But, uh, you know, the, the best, most creative guards are going to be able to take advantage just the matchup on a consistent basis whenever he gets it. Like, he's not he's not a disaster on defense. He's not a good defender on the perimeter either. All right. I got one more for you before we go. And by the way, Sam and I spoke about a lot more in this piece that we did together, which, again, was out Monday and Tuesday on The Athletic, and you can check it on The Athletic or The Athletic DC or The Wizards page or my author page or Sam's author page or wherever you look for stuff. Um, you know, we spoke a lot about LaMelo Ball, and we obviously spoke a lot about Wiseman, but we had a ton on Anthony Edwards, who who Sam had the Wizards taking at number one if they happen to luck out and get the number one pick. Um, so we have a lot. We have a lot there. Um we have a lot on Halliburton, and we have a lot on Vassal and just a, a bunch of stuff up there. We we really went super in-depth. So you can definitely check that piece out if you want more. You just figured this would be a nice, a nice taste of it. I, I have one more question for you before we wrap up. So you are, like, depressingly low on this draft. Like, if I sent some of the texts that you have sent me about what this draft has done to your psyche, like— if I showed that to a psychiatrist, then he would be seriously worried for you. Where, fill, fill in the blank. This is the worst draft since when? Uh, yeah, I would say 2013. Um, the Anthony Bennett, like, you know, I think of it as like the Anthony Bennett, Nerlens Noel, uh, Ben McLemore, um, Otto Porter and Victor Oladipo and Giannis and, you know, uh, uh, who else? That was Rudy Gobert, CJ McCollum were in that draft, so mm -hmm. it ended up being fine. But to me, the strength of a draft is in being able to confidently project what a player is going to be, being able to competently and strongly evaluate uh, with confidence what a player is going to be and having a lot of those guys be higher-end players, obviously. Uh, in this draft, there are a lot of high upside swings, let's call them, that teams could take. I think of LaMelo Ball as one of them. I think of Anthony Edwards as one of them. Um, some people think of Jaden McDaniels as one of them. I personally don't, but I understand the concept behind something like that. Um, this is a draft where I think the talent curve is flatter than it's been in the past, and I do think that it's a pretty weak draft because of it. Um, and I would bet you that the bust rate is probably going to be as high as we've seen it in this draft since 2013, despite the fact that I think across the NBA, front offices, people like myself, we've gotten a lot better at evaluating over the course of that time, if only because of the proliferation of tools 
at our disposal to be able to evaluate guys like uh, within draft. So uh, I do think that it's pretty weak draft just insofar as I would not want to have a top five pick in this class because I think that uh, it's going to be going to be hard to get a true difference maker. Uh, let me rephrase. I think that the likelihood that you're going to get a legitimate difference maker uh, in the top five is lower than it has been in recent drafts. This is not a Zion Williamson situation. This is not a Luka Doncic situation. I think Trey Young would like, even with all of Trey Young's warts, and I think I had him at like sixth overall in my draft board in 2018, like, uh, I would pretty comfortably say Trey Young would be the number one overall pick in the 2020 draft, even absent the context of what he's done so far in the NBA. So, um, yeah, I think that this is a, this is a tough draft. And I'm not, uh, not in, I would not be enthused if I was an NBA team with a high tech, unfortunately. Yeah, I figured you'd say 2013 because I was, I mean, 2013 was just such a weird draft. There were some really good players taken. They were just late. Giannis was 15. Gobert was 27. Um, I was I was looking at it, and you know the best player taken in the top 10 was Victor Oladipo. But it took Oladipo like six years before he really became really really good, and then he got hurt. It took him until his third team. Yeah, how it took him until his third team yep. to be good, which means. Even though Orlando took him at number two and Victor Oladipo has become a good basketball player, uh, like an elite-level basketball player that made a third-team All-NBA, the Magic still didn't get that value out of him, which means it wasn't a great draft pick for them. So here's one quick trivia question. Just give me, give me what you think the answer is. How many, how many players picked in the top nine that year, CJ McCollum was tenth, and he's over. How many players? Right. How many players picked in the top nine in 2013 are over 30 win shares for their career? So number one was Anthony Bennett. No, number two was Victor Oladipo. I would venture Vic is yes, but it's going to be close. Like I would have guessed somewhere between like 25 and 35 for Vic. Uh, number three was Otto Porter. I would say you, man. Yes. I think for Otto, uh, number four was who was number Cody four? Zeller. Number four is Cody Zeller. That's probably going to be no. Number five was Alex Glenn. That's no. Number six was Nerlens. That's no. Although Nerlens is like one of those weird players that analytics love, I still think the answer is going to be no. Um, number seven was Ben McLemore. That's no. Number eight was KCP. Who was eight? Contavious Caldwell Pope. Caldwell Pope. That's going to be no. Number nine was. Who is number nine? Trey Burke. Oh, yeah. Trey went number nine. That's going to be no. I thought Trey went like 11 or something mm. for some reason. Um, yeah, I'm going to say one guy. You were high. The answer is zero. Zero players. What is, what is Vic at? Vic is at 24. Otto is at 29.9. Uh, Cody Zeller's at 27. New Orleans Noel's at 21. KCP's at 28. Wind shares are not the end all be all. Like, uh, there's a lot yeah, of flaws in them, but that's. That. No, it's a nice, it's a nice descriptor that, like, of how. Nerlens. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no one would say that like Nerlens' career has even been like 20 wind shares worth. You know, like it's just like 
Yeah. No. And, and like, it's, you know, folks like Cody Zeller, he's turned into a really nice starter. And, um, I like Cody Zeller a lot. Valuable this year for the Lakers. Those are all, those are all good players. All that is is a nice example of why, of how the top 10 that year was just a, if you got a top 10 pick, you were screwed. Because people like to say, uh, you know, you number one, you took Anthony, you could have taken Giannis. No, realistically, no one was going to take Giannis number one. Like, that's why he went 15. There's a reason. No one was actually going to do that. You have to be realistic. And if you had a top, top pick that year, it was like, you were screwed in terms of getting an absolute elite guy, probably. I mean, unless, you know, maybe Oladipo develops quicker if he goes to the right organization, the right situation, you know. But, like, otherwise you were screwed in getting an elite talent. Uh, there were five guys from that draft who were over 30, by the way, so far. Giannis, obviously. Rudy Gobert, obviously. And then Steven Adams, Mason Plumley, and CJ McCollum. So that's that loves big men, too. But, yeah, I was going to say, like, even though, like, Mason Plumley is over that number, like, Mason Plumley is, uh, you know, a backup center. Yeah, nice player. Really good backup center. A very underrated passer. Really good passer. Yep. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that kind of shows where that draft is at. And, yeah, if you were going to get – Otto Porter's a, a really good role player. When he stays healthy, really good role player. Great shooter, good team defender, pretty good one-on-one defender. It's a really good role player. But he's not what you normally are hoping for when you draft third. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's a good analogy because that's, that's the vibe. I don't really have tons of – I mean, I guess I have opinions on, on the prospects, but I don't think my opinions are necessarily better than anybody else's because uh, I just don't watch college the way that I watch the NBA. Um, but – from talking to people around the league and, and the, the vibes that I get about this draft, yeah. Feels very 2013-y. Anything to plug before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. Just go to The Athletic. I have a lot of random stuff up there. So go 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 to The Athletic and read the random shit I've written over the course of the last however long. Feels like I've written a lot. <laughs> well, go, go read Sam's stuff. Sam, I've said it a million times. Sam is just like as good as there is doing this stuff. He is... It's so informed, so plugged in. The analysis is so on point. And um, I always learn when I read your stuff. So I always love reading your stuff. Um, Everyone else, I'm sure, will enjoy it too. Uh, I've got a piece coming out on Troy Brown probably on Friday. So you can check that out when it comes out on Friday. Just a little thing about Troy working to to try to defend point guards uh, to see if maybe he could play some minutes full-time. At point guard, that's a big goal for him, and he talked about that when he did a, a Q&A with fans on, on our site a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it would be nice to talk to him about that for, for a little follow-up story, so I'll have that up for Friday. I'll have more content up next week. Back with another podcast next week. Uh, subscribe to Wizards After Dark if you're just randomly listening to this episode. Subscribe on iTunes or on the Athletic app or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Give us five stars on iTunes leave a review as i always say the reviews really help more than you could possibly know again you can sign up for the athletic if you're a subscriber to this but you're not a subscriber to the athletic you can sign up there and if you want to get 40 percent off on an annual subscription you can do that at theathletic.com slash wizards after dark 
Again, that comes out to about a 36, not about, that comes out to $36 for an annual subscription and it gets you everything, full access to everything on the site. Sam's stuff, my stuff, Michael Lee, David Aldridge, MLB, NFL, everything. So you can check that out theathletic.com slash wizards after dark that's 40 percent off on an annual subscription i will be back with a new episode next week i'll talk to you guys then